0: Uh, Dear friends, uh, please take your Bibles with me now and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Come to a new chapter uh, in our study this morning. We will read verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 15. Shall we stand together now for the reading of God's holy inerrant word? now, brothers and sisters, the very words of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God shall stand forever. This morning we'll um, pay special attention uh, to verse uh, 1, chapter 15. Uh, For the sake of time and especially importance, uh, we'll have to skip over the triumphant language of verse 6. Uh, that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness until our next studies uh, together. Uh, let us pray, shall we, and ask God's blessing now on the ministry of the Word. Father, once again, uh, we thank you uh, for this, your holy word. Which is not only a record of your gracious covenant dealings with your people uh, throughout history, but is itself a revelation of the character, nature, person, and salvation of our God. And so, because it is this, and because you have promised your Holy Spirit to all who ask in faith, we would earnestly pray now with all of our hearts that you would so join your word and the ministry of your Spirit as to speak to the hearts of your people things concerning everlasting life, and the highest blessedness and joy of your people, which is you and you alone. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we continue our study this morning and come to chapter 15, we come to a chapter that is so rich in spiritual truth and power, a chapter that makes such a contribution to biblical revelation that we must consider it a high watermark in the book of Genesis. We've made the point in many ways. We have certainly belabored the point throughout our study of the first 14 chapters in this, uh, the beginning of the book of beginnings that those narratives establish the foundations and they set the table for all that is to come. The great trajectory of the Bible originates here in the account of the origin, uh, fall, and early history of mankind. Here is the establishment of God's gracious covenant, his sovereign and merciful calling of a people, unto himself, and it is the foundation of the history, not only of Abraham's, but of our redemption. And further, because the New Testament will call Abraham the father of us all, the father of the faithful, of all who have faith in Jesus Christ, you and I can no more separate ourselves from him than a son could disown his father. This is what saving faith in the Lord looks like, resting in the glory and the grace of God and being assured in the heart that God's promises are true and trustworthy. And everything that is to follow is an outworking of that understanding of God first presented here, man and salvation grace and glory that is introduced already in the Bible. This explains, beloved, why later in the Bible so much attention is paid to this history, why it is so often appealed to in later developments, and why the Bible never corrects, never changes, never alters its theology or its understanding of reality from what it was at the beginning. You don't have one message in Genesis and then another in the Gospel of John. And the writers of the New Testament, to a man, understood themselves to be building on a foundation that is laid down in this history recorded in Genesis. And Genesis 15 15 is a particularly important demonstration of this fact. Uh, statements and events in this chapter are cited or alluded to some 14 times in the New Testament and always to prove some important assertion that the New Testament writer, whether Matthew or Luke or Paul or James or the book of Hebrews was making. In other words, they are confirming Christian truth by referencing what happens in Genesis 15, showing full confidence that what happened here is true and remains true for believers in this and every age. And we've seen this unity in a number of principles. The first principle in which we saw it is the principle of divine election. Abraham was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees, A pagan land and out of a family that practiced idolatry and he was called solely on the principle of the sovereign grace of God and that sets the stage for all of God's dealings going forward God calls a people for himself out of darkness and out of sin into his light and life and we come only because of electing grace a second principle Uh, of the divine promise is the foundation of a transformed life. Notice, God does not begin working with Abraham or the patriarchs as though they were subjects for moral reform. That is, in any case, an unbiblical attitude, which is unfortunately characteristic of much of modern religion and has caused much confusion and anguish in souls today. But God begins instead with promises. He makes promises to the patriarchs and he swears that he will keep them. The keynote is not what Abraham has to do for God, but what God will do for Abraham. And then in response to this will come the change of the inner and outer life. And you can already hear in that, can't you, echoes of the gospel. Jesus says, for example, to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But first he says, neither do I condemn you. Promise comes first. Change the order and you lose Christianity. Finally, is the principle that the promises are fulfilled supernaturally. They are accomplished by God through His sovereign almighty power and not by human effort. There is an unapologetic supernaturalism, we've spoken of it before, that runs through this narrative and it runs through the whole Bible. Abraham and his family will be delivered and the promises will be fulfilled but only supernaturally. And this explains why in the life of Abraham, so many things, including Sarah giving birth at such an advanced age, proceed contrary to nature. And last chapter, we saw that Abraham is beginning to understand this principle. That's why he refused to accept any spoils and therefore any possession of the land of promise from the king of Sodom. For, he said, he had raised his hand to Yahweh and would only accept the gifts and blessings that came supernaturally from God. Well, what are we to make of all of this? But to observe that from the beginning, there has been one single unified covenant of grace. Though it has been differently administered throughout history, nevertheless, at essence, It is one, one for the ancients, one for us, one covenant of grace, one plan of salvation, one foundational promise, and that a spiritual one, a promise not fundamentally of land or of wealth or of material earthly blessing, but a promise of immortality a promise of eternal life, a promise of the presence and enjoyment and possession of nothing less than God himself. What do we see in verse 1 But the almighty, transcendent, and yet also the personal God, Yahweh, the God who is near, coming to Abraham, Abram still, this time in a vision we read and speaking to him personally, speaking to his need, to his fears, to his concerns and to his worries and his doubts and promising that he himself, God himself, will be his shield, his divine Protector and Savior and Deliverer. And further still, that he himself will be Abraham's exceedingly great reward. But he greets him by name, does he not? How often does God do that in the Bible? He greets his children. He greets his servants by name. And beloved, we need to insert our name here. Do not be afraid and add your name, dear child of God. Why? Why can he, Abram, why can you and I be told not to be afraid? Uh, Is it because there's nothing wrong in the world? (laughs) No. Is it because there's nothing whatsoever to fear? No. It is because God is our shield. Now it seems that Abram should have had nothing to be afraid of. He's just returning from a great, great victory in battle over the eastern kings. He's triumphant and victorious. He's met with Melchizedek. What a joyous occasion that was. But there may be reason to fear a reprisal. His victory might expose him to their vengeance. And he was, after all, a stranger in a strange land with nothing but a promise from God to support him. Not even an heir of his own to pass it on to. And it was in These circumstances that Yahweh came to Abram in a vision saying, I am your shield. That is, I myself will be your defense against all your foes. I'm sure you've noticed how often in the Bible God tells his servants, do not fear, be not afraid. You know why that is, right? It's because we tend to be afraid. We struggle with fear, do we not? Fear of all kinds. Fear of enemies. Fear of failure. Fear of the future. Fear for our children. Fear of letting others down. Fear of being let down. The fear for ourselves. I don't think any in the room this morning would be honest if we said that we never dealt with fear uh, at all. That's why God comes so often and says to his children, Be not afraid. And one of the reasons we struggle so much with fear is because we look at the things that concern us from a manward perspective instead of a Godward perspective. We see our resources, how limited they are. We see the resources of others and in the world and how limited they are. How little we can do, therefore, to bring change. And we become fearful and sometimes worse. We panic and we live in deep despair. But God came to Abram to soothe his sorrowing and his anxious heart with consolation and he says to him now Abram I don't want you to live in fear and indeed you don't need to live in fear and here is the reason Abram because I am the Lord your God and I am with you and I am a shield to you to protect you and defend you from all your enemies And if I am gracious to you, and if I am with you and present to help you, what have you to fear? I will go with you into every situation. I will help you with every trouble. I will be a strength to you when you are weak. I will uphold you to keep you from falling. I will defend you and protect you from all your foes. Trust me. Believe me. Take me at my word. If you have me, the Lord God says, there is no reason truly to fear. And so you see, dear friend, it is the presence of God that makes all the difference. It is believing that he is who he says he is. It is trusting his promises. It is taking him at his word. It is walking by faith and not by sight. Sight says we have everything in the world to fear. Faith says if I have God, no matter what I see, I have no need to fear. God is with me. He is my shield and defender. That is the first thing. Further, Abram Yahweh says, I am not only your shield, but also your exceedingly great reward. God's reward will be greater than the booty, the spoils that Abram had recently turned down. God's reward will be greater than anything this world has to offer. God's reward is of infinite worth. I myself, Abram, I myself am the source and the spring. I myself am your highest joy. I myself am the supreme blessedness of your soul. Not spoils from victory, not earthly blessing nor material gain, not worldly wealth nor power, but I I am your reward. The older writers used the word felicity. The Lord himself would be Abraham's soul's felicity. I don't know if you know that word. It's not used as much today. It is the state of being happy, especially in a very high degree. It is bliss joy beyond compare. What is being emphasized here is that the patriarch's supreme blessedness consisted in the possession of God himself. And dear friend, where we go wrong in the Christian life so often and where we set our soul up for disappointment and sorrow, is when we set our eyes upon the blessing more than on the one who blesses, or upon the gifts more than upon the giver, or upon the benefits more than the great benefactor. For our God has said, I, I am your very great reward. I myself, your soul's only true satisfaction, and joy. The earthly signs or gifts are signs of my goodness to you. I happily give them to you, but they are just that. They are signs, but you're to raise your eyes higher above the earthly gifts and blessings to the heavenly gift, which is God himself. He offers nothing less than himself to Abraham. To be sure, there is the promise of a great nation, of a land in which to dwell, of a blessing to the whole world. But what blessing can possibly be higher than God himself? It's one of the reasons that there was a delay in the realization of God's promises to Abraham. Why? Such a delay. Why so many years to wait for them to come to fulfillment? Why so long? Was it not so that he could learn that his true blessedness, his highest happiness, his supreme joy was God himself and not the blessings to be bestowed, that he might, through those trials, learn to lift his eyes heavenward And did not God rule over Abraham's life in such a way as to make it abundantly clear that it was only through many tribulations that he must enter the kingdom of God and thereby to impress upon his soul that God had blessed him above all earthly blessing with life and immortality and the promise of eternity in the presence of the living God? And don't say ho-hum to that, dear friends, as familiar as it is to you. Dwell on that for a moment, beloved. Eternity. Never-ending time. World without end. We lack the ability to describe or fathom it. One of our hymns says, 10,000 years and we've only just begun forever and ever and ever. You've been there a million years and you've barely started. Can you fathom that? I can't. I hope you can't. No one can. And with whom? With whom will you spend this eternity? You will spend it, Christian, in the presence of the living God, basking in his glory, dwelling in his love, in awe of his holiness, tasting forever his goodness, abiding everlastingly in his grace and mercy. You will gaze upon the face of your Savior, Jesus Christ, and be made like him, You'll be saved in such a way that you will sin no more, nor ever desire to. You will know God and know Christ in fullness of glory and in joy and love and sweetness and intimacy and fellowship and unfettered communion such as you have never known on this earth even in the sweetest and best time of worship you have ever known. And that will be your experience, your blessedness, your felicity, your supreme happiness forever and ever and ever. And yet, we're impressed by money and things, by power and influence, by comforts and convenience. And we say, ah, that's it. That's the end. That's what I'm striving for. That's what God promises me. Oh, we are far too impressed with far too little. If only we lifted our thoughts heavenward. If only we considered these words of God to Abram And meditated on them, who He is, what He has in fact promised, what He has in fact prepared for us, what we are made for, what is waiting for us. Oh, we would be far less impressed with the things of this world, far more enthralled with God, His person, His grace, His heavenly reward. I am your reward, God says, your exceedingly great reward. What do you seek, friend? If it is not God himself, you have set your sights and your hearts far too low. If you have come to Christ for material blessings and expect from him earthly happiness it is clear that you have barely begun to be a Christian, if you have begun at all. Well, as it was Thanksgiving, I read this week again about William Bradford, the great separatist leader, and governor, as you may know, for many years of the Plymouth colony in 17th century Massachusetts. There were a number of details of his life I had not known. Born in England, of course, in 1590, Uh, William Bradford's father died when William was only a year old. Uh, Six years later, uh, his mother died, and he therefore became an orphan at the age of seven and was sent at that time to live with two uncles. Uh, His uncles wanted him to work on the farm, but William at that time suffered from a prolonged illness, and was unable to work. He turned to reading. He began to read the classics and to read the Bible and became curious about the separatist church. And after attaching himself to a local separatist pastor and separatist church, beginning to celebrate the Christian Sabbath with them, uh, some of the leaders and members were found out by the authorities and were either fined Or imprisoned. In time, they decided to leave England unlawfully for Holland, but they encountered a number of setbacks. One of them was a betrayal by an English sea captain who had initially agreed to take them to the Netherlands, but instead turned them over to the authorities. Most of that company, including William Bradford, were imprisoned for a short time. In 1613, Bradford married Dorothy May. A few years later, they had their first child. After they arrived in the New World and had harbored at Plymouth, Bradford was exploring with the company, the Bay, and a place for settlement. And While he was away, his wife, Dorothy, fell off the deck of the Mayflower and was drowned. And then there was the great sickness that winter. Uh, Bradford himself became gravely ill, was not expected to recover. Sometimes two to three people died per day. By the end of that first winter, half of the hundred settlers had died. He did marry again two years later, and they had several children. There would be tremendous struggles ahead, as you know. but The colony was established for the glory of God. Why continue with such setbacks? Why keep going with so much loss and sorrow? You must understand the character of these people. These were people who had lifted their eyes above the earth to heaven, and they were looking to heaven's reward. Their lives were marked by at least three things— a zeal for the undiminished glory of God, the absolute necessity of a biblically pure church on the earth, and the inevitable triumph of the kingdom of Christ over all earthly powers. And for this, they were willing to lose it all if God was their everlasting reward. Beloved, we shall be truly happy Truly happy, only when God is gracious to us. He offers himself to us above all earthly blessings that we may enjoy him. What is there more that we might desire than to enjoy God himself? Take these few words, church, take them to heart. They have power to change your whole perspective, to relieve you of your fears, to give you a reason for joy and hope, even when nothing else can. For the Lord your God says to you, dear child of God, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward, says your Redeemer to you. Let us pray. O Lord, look with mercy upon us in the quietness of this place. For having heard your word, we now earnestly desire to receive it in faith, to believe it in our hearts, and to live according to your promises. Forgive us, O Lord, for our small thoughts and desires, for setting our minds and hearts on earthly things, for being altogether too easily satisfied with the stuff of this earth and failing to lift our eyes toward heaven, where our true reward is. Our highest joy, our supreme blessedness lies. And it is you, O God, you yourself and you alone. Thank you that in days of old you offered nothing less than yourself to Abram to be his shield and his exceedingly great reward. And thank you that now that times have reached their fulfillment and the dawning of the ages have come and Christ has appeared, surely no less than such a promise is ours. May we embrace it now by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.